You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Two big stories involving Ukraine. First, a secret meeting in Kyiv between CIA chief Bill Burns and President Zelensky. Then in Germany, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin meets with his German counterpart as the two nations tussle over tanks for Ukrainian defense. Joining me now, Ukrainian bureau chief for the Washington Post, Isabel Kershudian. And please tell me I, I pronounced your last name correctly, Isabel. It's perfect. Perfect. Great. Um, so, Isabel, welcome back to First Look. Let's dive into this um, exclusive reporting by the Washington Post about CIA Director Bill Burns' meeting with Pres Ukrainian President Zelensky today in Kyiv. What was the purpose of the meeting, and what are the Ukrainians taking away from that meeting? Yeah, well, the last time he was in Kyiv, about a year ago, it was to warn Ukraine of what Russia was going to do, how it was going to be a full-scale invasion. Some of the things he told him were so specific, you know, threats to Zelensky's life, uh, the attack on Gostomol Airport where Russian paratroopers would try to land. So they take him pretty seriously now. And it was kind of similar this time, according to John Hudson's reporting, where he shared Russian military plans and kind of, you know, what the intelligence is saying. I think the Ukrainians really appreciate it, and because they now know that obviously that U.S. intelligence is quite reliable, and I think they see it as a, another signal of the U.S. support under the Biden administration. So they see that as a signal of support from the Biden administration, but it's a great segue to um, what's happening in Germany or what's been happening in Germany in terms of the conversations that are, the meetings that have been happening between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his German counterpart in Berlin. Talk about um, what's going on here. Why the tussle over tanks? Why won't Germany release the tanks that are in other European countries? And why is the United States so resistant to go to do what the Germans want? Yeah, it's, this is a tricky one because really the Germans are saying, you know, Washington, you have to be the first. And this is a line that Washington does not want to cross. It does not want to send Abrams tanks. It is willing to send Bradleys, strikers. Those are, you know, armored personnel character uh, carriers, infantry fighting vehicles. But tanks is sort of a, a line they don't want to cross. They don't see them as suitable uh, for the terrain here, they're very complicated to train on. There's proprietary sort of systems on there that would have to be, you know, really removed. Uh, it's just very complicated, whereas the German tanks they see as, you know, better for the Ukrainians. But, uh, you know, I don't know if Germany is going to be able to resist the political pressure to allow a country like Poland to send the leopards it has. Uh, they're, you know, that German tank that are already in the Polish stock. So I think this is an ongoing thing. It's already been going on for months, but pressure is mounting for the Germans. And I do think eventually they will relent. The signals right now are they're still saying no, uh, but the Poles have been pretty firm that we'll send them anyway. Uh, so I don't know how exactly that's going to work, but there is a lot of pressure on the Germans specifically right now. Um Earlier in the week, there was a, a, a helicopter crash. Uh, this happened on Wednesday. 
uh, in a suburb of Kyiv, which killed Ukraine's interior minister and at least 16 others. What do we know about the circumstances of that crash? Not that much. I mean, I can tell you that that morning in Kyiv, it was incredibly foggy. Uh, the weather was quite bad. Obviously, you have a situation in Ukraine right now where there are periodic power outages. And so it's possible that, you know, a light that should have been on or would normally be on was off. Uh, the SBU, Ukraine's main internal security service, is looking into three different, you know, scenarios of what could have happened in its investigation. That's that someone intentionally sabotaged a helicopter, uh, a violation of flight safety rules, uh, which could include weather conditions, or just a technical malfunction. But obviously, in a country that sees a lot of human loss every single day, uh, for something like that to happen, it was just another real, you know, sort of emotional blow to people here. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to make sure I was listening to you carefully. I didn't hear one of the scenarios being that perhaps, or maybe the helicopter was shot down by the Russians. Have Ukrainians, Ukrainian officials completely ruled that out? Yeah, that's pretty impossible. I mean, the Russians, the helicopter came down right outside of the Kiev region. For it to be shot down by an air defense system, you would have to have Russians on that territory, which they're not. Um, and the only scenario that would have been possible where it gets shot down is if the Ukrainians accidentally shot it down themselves. Uh, but I think that's been ruled out based on kind of the circumstances of the crash. Um, there are reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin is set to announce another large mobilization of forces. If that happens, how would that change the nature of the of of its war on Ukraine? I think the Ukrainians are expecting that to happen. That's obviously a you know a lot more people. Uh, which is difficult. Um, this is sort of Russia preparing for potentially a long war. And it knows that in a battle of attrition, it has the advantage over Ukraine because it does have more resources. Uh, but we actually had an interview today with the head of military intelligence here in Ukraine, Kirill Obudanov. And, you know, he said they already have more people than us. They have over 300,000 people fighting in this, you know, fighting us in this country right now. And we're holding our own. So, yeah, if they add more, it's not great. But you know, they don't have the weapons other than, you know, giving them guns. They don't have the weapons to really support that mass of people. Uh, that's something that, you know, we've kind of already seen glimpses of, that Russia even has to turn to Iran for, you know, self-detonating drones, that, you know, it's looking at buying rockets and other kind of ammunition abroad. So that does start to show some signs of maybe its own stocks deteriorating a year in. Um Last question before I, ha I have to let you go. Um, the invasion hits its one-year mark on February 24th. You're there in Ukraine. What is the mood of the Ukrainian people today compared to nearly a year ago? Yeah, I think people are naturally exhausted. Um, you, It's incredibly tiring every single day when there's news of, you know, loss of life, whether it's soldiers, civilians. Um, I think... Within that, though, there is an incredible resilience and determination. If these Russian missile strikes on, you know, critical infrastructure and civilian targets, you know, to make Ukrainian, the average Ukrainian's life much harder was supposed to sort of break the Ukrainian spirit. I think it has made people just even more angry, even more determined, even more sort of set to say, 
um, we are not going to give up and we're willing to fight this as long as we have to fight this uh, to just make this be the end and win. Um, so I think that's the general mood you hear is that people are incredibly angry. They hate Russia, but they're also tired. Isabel Kashurdian, Ukraine bureau chief for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Deputy Opinion Editor David Bondrelli and Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson. David, Gene, welcome back to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. All right, so David, I think this is only your second time on First Look, so I'm going to come to you first and just get your initial your initial thoughts on um, the Post's exclusive reporting today about the CIA chief's uh, secret meeting. Well, he traveled there secretly. It's not so secret. His meeting with the with the Ukrainian president. Well, I think this is uh, incredibly important. It's a signal that uh, we're in it to win it alongside the uh, Ukrainian people. Uh, it's also a reminder, I believe, to uh, Vladimir Putin of just how much we know about every conversation he has, every plan that he makes, every step that he takes. Uh, we are watching him. And <laughs> we have great, you know, we have... Uh, and an ability to to get inside his world, get inside his head, and immediately communicate that to the Ukrainians. We did it last February. We're doing it again now. And um, it, it, it's one one just hopes over and over again that at some point Vladimir Putin is going to wake up to the hopelessness situation. Mm-hmm. And and Gene, what do you make of the the tank tussle between Germany and the United States, where the Germans are saying um, we'll send our tanks if, but only if the United States will send its tanks? Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you know, on one level, it's a good thing that that the Germans have a, a complicated relationship with the idea of sending tanks across Europe. That's you know, that, <laughs> I guess that's a good point. That shouldn't be an easy thing for Germany. Um, uh, you know, more broadly, though, um, uh, Germany has, you know, it has. I think will continue these halting steps that it has been uh, taking, it, it, it's problematic for German society to, to think of, of, of being militaristic um, and uh, to think of, of participating even second or third hand uh, in, a, in a big war in Europe. And that's that, you know, and, and so that's difficult, but it, it sounds as if the Ukrainians are gonna get the tanks um, uh, at some point, uh, it's just kind of getting to yes uh, on, mm-hmm. on the part of the Germans and it's taken them some time. The, um, um, it, it, your conversation about intelligence though, I mean, it, it, to me, it really points out how vital US intelligence has been throughout the war, not just before the war, but, but in fact, all year. Uh, uh, U.S. has the, the United States has been providing um, 
sort of battlefield intelligence to mm-hmm. Ukraine that has made a huge difference uh, in the Ukrainians' ability to to uh, to anticipate and to strike back. Mm-hmm. David, one more question on Ukraine. During the midterms um, last year, late last year, now Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy said Republicans wouldn't write quote a blank check to Ukraine if Republicans ran the House. Well, they are now in the majority. Do you think they will actually follow through on that? Uh, I, I doubt it. I think there might be some. Uh, uh, noise from the back bench about uh, money to Ukraine. I think it was wise of the Congress to uh, pass a large package of military aid in the lame duck session. So there's uh, some money there in in the bank ready to go. But I believe, uh, you know, this this effort in to defend Ukraine, to uh, prevent uh, unlawful aggression in Europe. Uh, it's had the support of the American people and of the Europeans from the very beginning. And the leaders of uh, Western countries have not even had to sell it very hard because people just get this situation. I think if the Republicans in the House tried to stop uh, U.S. support for Ukraine and the uh, message machine cranked up, uh, to sell this, that they would get run over. Um, I agree. <laughs> Gene, <laughs> um, yesterday, the United States Treasury began what, what it calls, quote-unquote, uh, quote extraordinary measures to avoid defaulting on its debt. How in danger <coughs> is the United States of actually defaulting? So we've been here before. Um, there, there, There is always a period of you know, several months, it seems, when uh, the Treasury can um, do, I don't know, hocus pocus or sleight of hand or whatever it does uh, to uh, avoid actually hitting the debt ceiling as opposed to just technically hitting it, which I guess we did on the 19th. But, um, uh, you know, this is serious, serious business. The United States cannot possibly be allowed uh, to default on its debt. Uh, that would be a disaster for the U.S. economy, a disaster for the world economy. Uh, it is uh, it is actually unthinkable um, for us to for it to be a serious possibility. Yet uh, it it is a possibility. I I kind of doubt it will happen, but um, I doubted things in the last few years would happen that actually did happen. So uh, this is going to take um, a real effort. Uh, and um, and it's going to take bringing, you know, building some consensus in a body, the House of Representatives, uh, where there isn't uh, a lot of consensus. Uh, I think we're all old enough to remember what went down in 2011 when we had the first major serious um, uh, debt ceiling crisis this this country faced. And the Republican Party then was ruled by the Tea Party. And these were folks who were all about fiscal rectitude and, and everything. This cast of folks who are in the Republican majority make the Tea Party folks seem reasonable. So David, you know, Republicans are insisting on major spending cuts before the debt limit is raised again. The White House says it won't negotiate on this. The same stance 
that President Obama took uh, tw 11 year, 12 years ago, considering the debt limit must be raised for money Congress has already spent so that the United States doesn't dine and dash, should future spending cuts and a debt limit increase even be part of the same conversation? Well, they should be, could be, they will be part of the same conversation <laughs> and some kind of, uh, you know, face-saving um, compromise will have to be arrived at to move a few uh, Republican votes into the column uh, with the Democratic uh, minority to get this done. It will happen. Uh, the position that uh, Speaker McCarthy has set forth uh, is completely untenable. He says that, uh, that all the spending cuts have to come from non-defense and non-Medicare and non-Social Security. He doesn't want to touch any of the uh, popular programs. Well, that's uh, that leaves about a trillion dollars of spending, and the deficit's a trillion dollars. It hit that mark under Donald Trump and remains there. Um, in other words, to get to, to zero, uh, as some of the uh, Republicans are talking about, uh, they'd have to cut everything. Uh, well, that's a lot of popular programs. That's the farm bill uh, that uh, that is uh, untouchable in the red states. You know, that's uh, uh, property tax uh, exemptions. That's all sorts of extremely popular programs, and they can't go there. So this will get done, but there'll have to be some kind of uh, of a of a give back so that uh, the Republicans who make the deal ultimately are able to sell it to their voters. Well, I mean, you're a, a whole lot more optimistic uh, than I am, sure. David. But you know, you know, Gene, as I'm as I'm listening to to David, I'm just wondering. Um, oh, I, I I remember just looking at my my Twitter thing. I remember seeing uh, a, a tweet just before we went on from someone who makes the suggestion. You know what Democrats should do? They should. Agree to all the concessions that the Republicans want, uh, you know, to get the deal. And then when it comes time to vote for it, vote against all of them and make the Republicans <laughs> um, eat the pain that would, would well, come from that. Smart, I mean, on a gut level, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of gangsta, but does it make sense? I'm not sure that makes sense. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think uh, playing, you know, I don't think anybody ought to play games here. David is probably right that there's going to have to be some face-saving, um, uh, in quotes, concessions uh, that allow uh, some members to go home. I, I hope that's right, actually, because my worry is how many um, uh, Andy Biggs's are there uh, in the Republican caucus. Andy Biggs says he will never, ever vote to increase the debt ceiling, full stop. And he won't. I'm sure he'll vote against it, whatever whatever happens. And so um, uh, it, it doesn't take but a handful of those uh, to then make it incumbent on Kevin McCarthy to get this through with the support of Democrats and uh, and some Republicans willing to take that take that vote and um, that gets McCarthy in trouble. 
um, with his caucus that puts his job as speaker in jeopardy because any one member of his caucus can can move to oust him. So it's it's very complicated for him. And, uh, you know, this would be a, a tough needle for someone with the skills of Nancy Pelosi to thread. I worry about Kevin McCarthy's skill set and whether he can, you know, get that get that piece of thread through the eye of that needle. Right, right. Let's switch gears and talk about the Biden classified documents situation. Yesterday in California, the president was asked about it. He spoke for the first time since the second pages of documents were found last week. Uh, the president said he has, has, quote, no regrets about um, not disclosing documents quickly. Washington Post has an, had an incredible TikTok with new information uh, in the paper yesterday. Gene, you wrote a column saying there are major differences between the Biden document, document case and the Trump document case. There are a lot of differences. Just give, give the number one difference. The number one difference is that, um, is that Trump uh, kept uh, a lot of classified documents and, and refused to give them back, refused to let anybody know what he had uh, for more than a year. Uh, and, uh, and he had a lot of documents, um, whereas uh, the Biden, uh, President Biden uh, and his team, when they discovered they had in their possession classified documents, they immediately uh, reported them, turned, turned them back in, uh, and, um, and have been open and cooperative and have, have been looking for more. Um, I hope by this point they've looked in the attic and in the basement and wherever else uh, there could possibly be documents um, because uh, those differences uh, do not fully uh, cancel out the the commonality, which is that in both cases, um, classified documents that, that were not supposed to be outside of secure uh, places were in were kept in insecure places were not um, handled in the proper way. Huge difference in degree, huge difference in intent. Um, uh, but it, but that central thing happened in both cases. And David, as I was reading through. Um, the, the story yesterday with the, the new TikTok of what happened and why it happened. The thing that it, one of the foundations of the story is, you know, there seems to, seems to be a tension between the legal requirements that the Biden administration is under in terms of how to handle these documents, how to even talk about these documents, and the Justice Department's involvement. And then there's the, the PR problem that 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 is causing the administration and causing the headache for the administration and allowing Republicans to conflate the two cases, the Trump classified case and the Biden uh, classified documents case and the Biden classified documents case. Do you see the pushback if you disagree that there is that what we are seeing here in the case of Biden PR versus legal strategies bumping up against each other? Uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> this is a non-journalist thing to say, but 
I'm really concerned about us getting out over our skis on this story. Um, we don't know what the Biden people actually knew or when they knew it about these documents. I mean, somehow somebody decided that some of these papers should go to uh, the B Penn Biden Center. Others should go to the garage next to the Corvette. Others should be inside the house. Why did they make those decisions? Did they make those decisions without knowing what were in, was in the boxes? Uh, if they opened the boxes, how did they go through the papers and decide where they should go without noticing that some of them had classified markings on them? So uh, I don't know the answers to any of those questions, but until I do, I'm a little concerned, a little reluctant to say that, oh, six years after he left office, they suddenly opened the box and figured out what was inside. Um, maybe that's what happened, or maybe the reason there's a tension between their PR strategy and their legal strategy <coughs> is they're still figuring out how much legal trouble they're in. Gene, hmm. what do you make of what David just said? Uh, uh, look, David makes an absolutely um, not just a good point, but um, but the right point in that, no, we do not know how the Biden documents got where they were uh, and remained where they were. Um, and um, so we will, the facts, we'll get the facts out. Um, uh, and, and hopefully the administration will tell us more uh, at some point. Um, the special counsel, uh, I'm sure, will uh, will delve into this and we as journalists uh, we'll be trying to report that story. So it is absolutely right that um, we are presently assuming facts not fully in evidence, and uh, so we shouldn't. Uh, we should always report and uh, and not assume. I mean, um, as you know, it. If I could well, jump in, uh, I mean, uh, real quick, I know we're almost out of time. But what we know is that the way Donald Trump has handled his papers is wrong. We just don't know what the situation is with the Biden papers uh, fully yet. So I'm not excusing Trump when I say, let's wait and figure out what's going on with Biden. Good point. David Vondrelli, yeah. Eugene Robinson, <laughs> thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You thank too, Joe. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.